Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by Hyperskill. Hyperskill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today, we are joined by Sam Simpson from Founders Catalyst. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Conversation. Today, we are joined by Sam Simpson from Founders Catalyst. Sam, welcome. Hi, Ricardo. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us all about yourself and Founders Catalyst. Introduce yourself to the audience, please. Uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. So I'm uh, Sam Simpson. I'm CEO or co-founder. I, I think co-founder is probably more fitting of um, the Founder Catalyst. So by intro, I'm an exited founder. Um, I became an accidental entrepreneur a few years ago, started a company, and then uh, that grew from zero to $27 million in four years. And I exited to private equity. Uh, I'm an angel investor as well um, and CEO of Founder Catalyst. We do a few things. So firstly, uh, we offer a whole bunch of free resources on our website, stuff for founders that, you know, virtually every founder needs at an early stage but can't afford to pay for. Um, secondly, we help people get SEIS, EIS, Advanced Assurance, which are um, SEIS and EIS are amazing tax relief schemes in the UK. And they're a game changer. You know, if you're trying to raise in the UK, they're essential and you need to know about them. We do legal funding around paperwork and we make intros between our customers and potential sources of funding. Quite a lot. You're really the, the go-to company uh, for any startup in the UK, really. I'd like to think so, yeah. Because <laughs> no, the, the range of services you offer is, 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 it's, I don't think any startup can actually launch their business without going through one of your services. There's just no way around that, right? Especially the, the SEIS and EIS. Um, on that topic, um, I was going to ask you, how, how did you get started? I mean, what was the motivation to start the company? So um, my, my journey was not straightforward. I, um, I, I never intended to be an entrepreneur. I started out my career as a, uh, a technologist. So I'm a, I'm a reformed geek, so degree in computer science and those kind of things. Spent years and years and years delivering technical solutions, delivered uh, you know, a hundred million pound project for a secure uh, uh, government customer. And, and ultimately, I worked for the same company for 15 years happily. I went from being the most junior engineer up to tech director. And then, um, yeah, it was really, it was a really fun journey until January 2013, that business disappeared literally overnight. So they were a private equity backed bank debt laden business that bought, you know, they bought a dozen different companies over 15 years loads of debt and bolted them together with the aim of building kind of a, a huge business. Um, unfortunately, they overextended and that business literally disappeared overnight, which is amazing. I mean, it had two and a half thousand employees. It had nearly half a billion in revenues. It was, it's just a ridiculous story, really. Um, that business disappeared overnight and I found myself unemployed um, at the end of January. And it was, I mean, it was eye-opening. It was absolutely brutal. Um because of the way the company was run, at the end of January, the liquidators were called in, the administrators, sorry. Um, and they said to every employee, there's no pay for January. Bear in mind, it's the 28th of January. You're not getting paid. There's no redundancy pay, no pay in lieu of notice, not paying your expenses or bonuses or anything like that. Basically, they threw us out on the street with no money, which um, was pretty harsh for 2,500 people. Um, I kind of decided to take my destiny in my own hand. I'd always worked on the basis that, you know, if you do the right thing in a job and, you know, you'll keep getting promoted and life will be good. 
that turned out not to be the case for me. So I started my own company, hence why I became an accidental entrepreneur. Um, and yeah, and that business did really well. We uh, did um, half a million in our first two months, five million in our first year, and then grew to nearly 30 million um, in about three and a half years. Now, my co-founders wanted to do a buy and build. So borrow loads of bank debt and take on P cash to buy businesses and bolt them together. Mm-hmm. If you were listening at the start of that story, I've been through that and it didn't end too well for me. Mm-hmm. So um, I uh, shook hands with my co-founders and, uh, you know, wished them well with their journey. But I exited with a wheelbarrow full of cash then. Um, now, it, anybody that knows me knows I'm really, really passionate about SEIS and EIS, the tax relief schemes. And hopefully we'll get to talk more about the benefits of those in a minute. Um, but actually, I invested in my own business under EIS. So when I came to exit, it saved me and my co-founders genuinely millions in capital gains tax on an exit. So funny enough, once I had exited, I was a massive fan of SEIS, EIS. I'm like, right, how else could I use this this magical tax relief? Um, so I started angel investing um, at, in, at the start of 2018. Over the last six years, I've got 32 investments and about three quarters of a million deployed. And um, and there is a point to this story. Sorry, Ricardo. Um, but I kept bumping into um, <laughs> I kept bumping into loads of founders at pitch events. There's a really lovely example. I met a guy who um, had a PhD in AI. He was a hedge fund trader, a part time lecturer in UCL, and he had in his spare time built AI software to do commodities forecasting using AI. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that is investor bingo right there. I think I literally threw my checkbook across the room at him. Um, Anyway, I, I heard him pitch and he was just absolutely amazing. He had three amazing, amazing customers lined up to trial his software and he had a team ready to go. All he needed was a little seed capital to get going. Yeah. So I, I took him for a drink afterwards and I asked him the usual investor questions. You know, do you have a term sheet of your SEIS, EIS advanced assurance? What's your pre-money valuation? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and he said, I'm going to stop you there. I've got no idea what you're talking about. I just don't understand how this game's played. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This guy is the, you know, if he, yeah, if he doesn't understand how to play the game, then nobody does. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I helped him do his funding round. I mean, that was ridiculously easy to close, but I rolled up my sleeves and helped him close his funding round. And I invested myself because he is the most investable founder that I'd ever met. And that story was repeated a few times. I bumped into people, didn't know what they were doing, helped them close the funding round. And I thought, actually, you know, I don't scale. I love working with people. I love working with entrepreneurs, but I can only help one person at a time because it's actually really time consuming. Um, so I started Founder Catalyst to scratch that itch, which is a way that can help people in the same way I helped Tristan back in the day, can help people do funding rounds, but using technology to take the heavy lifting um, out of the way. Because SCIS, so if you want to tell our audience a bit more about SCIS, because they are a lot of early stage founders uh, amongst the audience. Uh, what exactly is it and why is it so important? Because I don't think people fully realize how massive it is and how big of a help it is, both for their business and also for the investors. So if you want to explain a bit a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah for sure. So there are two schemes, um, SEIS and EIS. SEIS is Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme. And EIS, which is the big sister, if you like, is uh, just Enterprise Investment Scheme. SEIS is meant for, it's usually used for first funding rounds, so first 250K, very early stage, and then people move on to EIS after that, Whether e- when, they're, when they've either used all their SEIS or they're out of time. 
Um, in turn, let's focus on what SEIS does first. And it's worth mentioning, both of these schemes are tax relief schemes just for the investor. So there is no direct benefit to the founder at all, or the startup. There's no tax relief or anything. So lots of founders kind of go, well, you know, why, why do I care? Well, the answer is if, um, you know, there are thousands of businesses out there offering amazing tax relief scheme to investors, and we'll come on to that in a minute. If you're not also offering the same tax relief, then, you know, investors just aren't going to be interested in your business. There's a second soft benefit to founders as well. So SEIS and EIS is really prescriptive about the rights and protections that I can request as, a, as an investor. So I'm not allowed to have things like liquidation preferences or anti-dilution or no dilution and things like that. Now, you may not know what those terms mean, but they are, no, let's put it this way. They are very investor friendly and therefore very founder unfriendly terms. So if you're a founder uh, looking to raise money, you want the most founder friendly terms you can possibly get. Certainly at an early stage anyway, but at any stage really. And SEIS and EIS mandate that, you know, investors can't ask for those really punchy VC type terms. So that's really, that's another soft benefit for you as a founder. Anyway, let's cut to the chase and talk about the tax benefit for investors, which is the primary cause. Um, so, you know, let me give you an example. If I put £10,000 into a startup under SEIS, then the government gives me back um, 50% income tax relief almost immediately with some caveats. So I put 10 grand in, the government gives me £5,000 back against tax I've, I've already paid, which is genuinely amazing, right? It's, yeah. it's just, that is in that is on its own good enough for most investors, but there are three other benefits that I'm going to talk through as well. Um, the second benefit is um, capital gains tax exemption. So if I invest in your business, I've already had half my cash back. Um, but when I come to exit, if you imagine you turn my £10,000 into a million pounds after three years, so 100 times return, as long as the business and everything continues to follow the scheme rules, then on an exit, I don't pay a penny in tax on that increase in value. Now, normally, I would pay 20% of the £990,000 uh, profit, if you like. Um, but under SEIS and EIS, there's no capital gains tax to pay at all. Uh, so it's totally CGT exempt. And that's what I benefit, benefited from in my business. I invested a relatively modest sum up front. And then when I exited for many millions, I didn't pay a single penny in capital gains tax. It's genuinely amazing. Um, the third benefit isn't quite so cheery, I'm afraid, but um, it's inheritance tax relief. So um, if I invest in your business, I've put my £10,000 in. I've had half of it back already. Um, if I die after two years of holding your shares, I did warn you it wasn't cheery. Um, then the shares pass to my estate outside of an inheritance tax calculation. So they are free of inheritance tax entirely, which is, again, a massive, massive tax saving for your um, for the beneficiaries of your estate. And those beneficiaries pick up the share and they don't pay CGT on an exit as well. So it's kind of a triple relief in that case, even though it's a pretty sad scenario. Um the final relief is something called loss relief. So the reality is investors know that seven out of 10 startups will fail um, for whatever reason. You know, there's lots of there's lots and lots of reasons. Um, and there's another relief called loss relief. Um, so imagine I've invested 10K, I've got 5K back. If the business fails for whatever reason, and this doesn't have to be after three years, it can be after six months or whatever then the government will give me back another 22%. Depending on my prevailing personal tax position, they'll give me back another 22% of my cash or another 2,200 quid. So actually, out of my 10K, I'm risking 2,800 pounds once all of the tax relief 
with no CGT on a on a positive exit. It's genuinely amazing. Um, EIS is the big sister scheme. I won't bore everybody with the same example, but you can raise much more over a longer period, but the tax reliefs are less. So under EIS, if I put 10K in, I only get £3,000 uh, £3, or 30% back. The capital gains tax and inheritance tax exemptions are identical, which is great. Um, and the loss relief is proportionally less as well. Interesting. I guess, I mean, let's be honest, these are massive advantages for both the startup and investor. How impactful do you think they are in the ecosystem? They're huge. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what the angel investment space in the UK would look like without, without those schemes. It would be a very, very, very different place. And, you know, I think SEIS specifically, but EIS to some extent as well, you know, getting a business off the ground is hard and lots of founders bootstrap, you know, can afford to bootstrap with a couple of thousand pounds so they can incorporate and register a name and a trademark, you know, do all of those kind of things. Um, but but there's such a massive gap between that point there and either reaching profitability and revenue or reaching a point where you are attractive to VCs, for example. There's a massive funding gap. And SEIS and to some extent EIS just mat- just really clearly fill that gap and give people that early stage massive risk um, capital that takes them to the point where you know they've either proved something, they've either released a product, they've got an MVP, or even better, they've got revenue, and therefore they're attracted to later scale, it's later stage investors. Um, and these schemes, I mean, they, I these schemes are genuinely the best in the world. I'm not aware of any country that has equivalent schemes. Um, and even France recently have announced that they are introducing very similar schemes with very similar tax reliefs to similarly, um, yeah, incentivize their investors as well. I, I was just because I read the news uh, quite recently, and they said that there's going to be a change in the way this scheme is, is, is uh, allows people to invest in. Uh, can you share some more information about this? Because they said apparently only accredited investors now invest in startups. Is that actually going to go ahead or are they going to stop that? Uh, so um, that's not actually a change to the schemes at all. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a nuance here. I don't want to split hairs, but it, the, the distinction is important. So last year they changed, last April they changed the rules and they raised SEIS from 150 to 250,000 pounds maximum investment. Uh, they changed it from two years from the date you start to trade the three years. So there are a few polishes last year, and all of those changes were absolutely positive. Um, so that's all good. The changes that you're referring to are the changes that came into, um, yeah, they came into existence on the 31st of January this year, and these are these are much less positive. Um, but they're not actually changes to the SEIS and EIS scheme. They're changes to the FCA financial promotion rules. Um, and th- there are existing set of rules already that say you need to be either a, you know, a high net worth or a sophisticated investor yeah. in order to be shown a financial promotion. And, um, what the financial conduct authority, what the government's done actually, because it's a piece of legislation that's implemented this. So it's the FCA recommending to the government and the government making a change. But what they've done recently is changed. Um, some of the rules around both the sophisticated and the high net worth investors. To give you an example, the old rules were to be considered a high net worth as an exa- as one of the example exemptions, um, you had to earn at least £100,000 a year. 
um, which is quite a lot. But that that hundred thousand pounds has been the same since I think it's two thousand and three or two thousand and five. I forget. Um, but but that that amount has unchanged has been unchanged for a couple of decades, and um, and the FCA argued that actually over time and given inflation, that amount should be much more. So what they've done, there's a Bank of England calculation. You can run the calculator on the Bank of England site that shows that, you know, 100,000 back in, I think it's 2003, um, you know, 20 years later, that 100,000 is 170,000. So the FCA argued that that £100,000 high net worth limit should jump up to £170,000. So I get the logic. The logic is absolutely sound, but that has a massive and disproportionate impact to uh, diverse founders and, and female founders, uh, sorry, diverse investors and uh, female investors specifically. And there's a really interesting statistic, for example, and I'm going to miss, I'm going to mix up my geographies, but the whole of Northern Ireland and I think it's the Northwest of England, those two geographies don't have a single female investor that meet the £170,000 um, wow. requirement. Now, That's crazy. Now, we can talk about, you know, the wage disparity between male and female and diverse um, workers. That's a totally different conversation. But the implications of this change mean that, you know, there will be a dramatic reduction in the number of female investors specifically, causing another problem where, you know, female investors um, invest more in female founders than male investors do, if that makes sense. So this this change will in, will massively impact, impact female investors which will then have a massive knock-on impact to female founders. And I think it was, you know, at a time where the government's pushing, you know, they've, they've increased the SEIS limits. Um, everybody is doing a really great job about, you know, promoting female founders and trying to make it a much more level playing field. UKBAA are doing, they're really championing this cause. Um, and on the other hand, the FCA are increasing the rules to massively decrease the number of number of female investors in the UK via these rule changes. It's it's a bit perverse, really. Yeah, it kind of it kind of skews the market a bit, doesn't it? It does indeed. Yeah. I was just about to ask you, what do you think are the biggest challenges? Because you you meet a lot of founders. I know you go to a lot of events, uh, ours included. Uh, you just did an amazing uh, presentation uh, in our last one on Tuesday. Uh, but what do you think are the main you know, challenges that founders face or, or the main things, you know, if you could just give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Just say, look, don't fall, don't fall on this, these mistakes because they do happen to everyone. God. Um, yeah, such a, such an interesting question with so many answers. I'm going to, I'm going to give two pieces of advice. Um, uh, yeah. So the first piece of advice is, you know, don't try and do a funding round ill prepared. So don't go and speak to investors and hope for the best. As a really bonkers example, I um, had a message a few weeks ago from somebody saying, will you invest in my business? I'm like, I, I always listen to people and I'm, I'm intrigued to hear new ideas. So I, invo- I, I requested a copy of the pitch deck and they went, oh, I don't have a pitch deck yet. Can I just talk to you? I'm like, uh, no, that's bonkers. So, um, yeah, that is absolutely ill prepared for a funding round. So what do I mean by being prepared for a funding round? So the four basic things you need are pitch deck, forecast, you need your advance assurance, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and you need a term sheet explaining what the what the rules, are, what the um, deal on offer is. Now, there are other things you can prepare, like a data room. You know your uh, disclosures against the warranties. You know you can have valuation justifications and lots of things like that. But the four key things that any investor 
in the UK will be looking for are those documents. Um, and advanced assurance, I've, I've introduced a new phrase there that I should probably introduce. Please, yes, uh, I'm curious about that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't want people leaving. Going, well, what is it on about? So um, SEIS and EIS, the tax schemes, I think I've explained those to death. Um, in order to prove that you're, as a founder, in order to prove that your investment uh, opportunity is eligible under the SEIS and EIS scheme, um, there's a process that HMRC offer called um, advanced assurance. So effectively, you build a submission pack to HMRC containing lots of information about your company, some of your legal documents and things like that. HMRC review it and they send you an email back saying, you know, uh, based upon everything you've given us and, you know, the rules as they are today, we believe we'll be able to issue SEIS and EIS um, um, certificates to your investors in due course. So, um, yeah, it's a really important piece of a uh, piece of paper to be able to wave at your investors. Um, and that's one of the services we offer at Founder Catalyst because it is so fundamentally important to, you know, to investors seeing that advance assurance. How how long does it take to get there normally? Um, I mean, we, uh, we've we automated the living daylights out of the process. So we can, um, we've got a lovely testimonial from a few weeks ago where somebody signed up as a customer at midday, say, and an hour later we'd submitted their advance assurance from them uh, for them. Um, in terms of the HMRC response, we don't have much sway over that. Unfortunately, they, yeah, it is what it is. The best we've ever seen is next working day, next business day. And we've had that maybe 1% of the time we get that. Um, one of these days I'm hoping for same day response, but um, I'll keep dreaming. Um, the average is about 10 working days. So yeah, it's about two two weeks. So would you advise a founder to first get these things sorted? Or you can just tell them, look, just try and get get an investor. And then when you do get the investor, you just apply for all the documentation. Yeah, no, don't do that. Um, So, yeah, you should have those four things in place before you speak to investors. Because otherwise, you just don't look prepared to do a funding round. You don't look like you've got your ducks in a row. And, you know, with my investor hat on, you know, if somebody comes to me and they, you know, they've got a pitch deck, but none of the other things, then... You know, that makes me concerned about how prepared they are for a funding round. But also, it, it makes me prepared about how prepared they are for the rest of the journey as well. If you're not getting the basics in place, what else aren't you doing? You know, have you got ICO registration and insurance and all of those kind of things? It just, yeah, it's just not a great look. Whereas if you're if you're a founder and you come to me as an investor and you go, right, these are the four documents you need. This is my data room ready to go. You know, if you make it easy for me, I'm like, okay, this this founder's... They've got their ducks in a row. Interesting. And when, when people start getting investors, what do you think is the best strategy to go about? Because you invest yourself as well. So how, how, how do you even get started, but also how to get more investors once you manage to convince a single one saying, hey, here's a great idea. Would you like to invest in this? Say yes. So, um, yeah, finding investors is the big challenge, to be honest. Preparing for a funding round is the easy bit. We do lots of it. And, you know, there are great ways of producing pitch decks and, you know, so getting your ducks in a row is easy. Actually getting in front of the investors is is very, very hard. And there are lots of, you know, there are lots of options. There are, you know, you can go and try and find individual investors and you can find lists of investors and you can stalk them on LinkedIn and you can automate the messaging and things like that. You know, that's one way. Um, you can go to private equity club and angel networks. And I'll come back to that one, actually, because for me, that is the optimal way of raising you can list yourself on some amazing free platforms. So second shout out to UKBAA here, but um, they offer a, a platform called DealShare where founders can list their funding opportunity 
Uh, I love it for two reasons. So um, firstly, it gets your opportunity in front of 15,000 active angels in the UK. Um, and secondly, it's absolutely free. So no charge to list, no charge if you raise via that deal share platform. Um, Barclays Eagle Labs offer a very similar platform as well. So it's absolutely worth looking at that. Um, other options include, you know, going to SEIS funds and EIS funds. There are some junior VCs that maybe play in the space you're interested in. And there are, you know, crowd funders. There are brokers that can help you. So there are lots and lots of options. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, to be honest, the optimal is to go to private equity club and angel networks. Um, and because there's a time cost trade off here, if you're trying to chase, and I'm not going to try and do the mental maths here, but if you're trying to chase individual investors in the UK for investment, assuming you've got a one in 20 hit rate. So, you know, one, uh, one out of every 20 investors you speak to is going to invest in your business. Assume you're raising 250 and assuming the average ticket size is about 25k, which it probably is. Um, so you need to find 10 investors. You're only going to find those by speaking, only one in 20 people. So you can do the match. You're going to need to speak to 200 people individually to pitch in order to get your 10 investors at 25k each. That's a real, that's a lot of time. And, uh, I mean, on the bright side, you'd be very polished at your pitch by the end of it, but it's just a huge distraction. It's a full time job pitching to 200 people. Um, that's really bad. So for me, if I were a founder, I would speak to a private X club and angel networks. There are about 100, 130 in the UK. There's a lovely map, actually, I'll, um, I'll share with you afterwards, Ricardo. There's a lovely map showing, interactive map showing every angel club within the UK on a That's Google map. That is very useful. because that it's, is- it's not that it's hard to find, but it's hard to find sources that don't want to charge you for that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, you know, most angel clubs have a preference for investing in their own geography, right? So, um, yeah, if you're, if you're Angel Investors Bristol, for example, which is one of my favorite clubs, um, you know, they have a very strong preference for investing in the Southwest. That doesn't mean they won't look at people off patch, but um, it's just harder. Um, so the benefit of going to those private equity club and angel networks is um, you get in front of 30, 50, 100 people in one go. So you're not pitching to, to individual people. Um, and that will hopefully massively save your time. You know, usually people have to pitch to, unless you've got something dramatically wrong, three or four angel groups, and then you should hopefully close your funding round. Mm-hmm. There is a downside to that. So there's a couple of downsides. Firstly, it's not the quickest process. So you have to apply online. You have to wait until there's a slot free. Sometimes there's onboarding. So it can take a couple of months to get in front of people. Um, and secondly, there's a fee. So you will have to pay. Usually it's between 5 and 7% of your any investment you raise by the club you pay as a success fee um but at that point you're trading off your time pitching to hundreds of people versus five percent fee for for raising and for me that's that's absolutely worth you know a trade-off that's worthwhile but that's a common that's a common fee isn't because sometimes i talk with with people who make introductions and they all say look normal fee is five percent so if you're trying to raise and if they have the ability to to give you all the money you need, it's you know it's it, 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 you end up saving time, I guess, time and money, right? Because they they do pretty much all the work for you. All you need to do is deliver a good pitch, and that's about it. That's it. And again, it's a trade off of uh, time and cost. Now, some and there's no right answer here. If you're a founder with loads of time on your hands and you love pitching and da da da, then you can avoid the five percent and you can do two hundred pitches, say. 
personally, that I, yeah, I wouldn't be running to do that. But it's, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. And we've got lots and Founder Catalyst has, you know, hundreds of customers that have raised, you know, without paying anybody a fee at all, just by, you know, just by rolling their sleeves up and hustling. I was just about to ask you, how hard is it for, for someone with not a lot of capital to actually go and raise funds? Uh, but I, I guess it just answered the question, which is you can actually do that. So you need to have a lot of capital uh, at your disposal to start the journey. Yeah. And I mean, let me, uh, I'm probably going to do myself out of some business here, but let me kind of explain. If I were a, a absolutely cash strapped founder, how I would start a business. So you can incorporate for 10 or 15 quid. That is trivial. Um, you can find a friendly accountant that will let you use their office as, uh, as long as you use them for your, the, you know, the filings and stuff like that. You can use their office as a, uh, as a registered office. So you're not putting your home address on company's house, which is tip number one, right? Um, you can, uh, produce a pitch fee. Uh, you, sorry, you can produce your, uh, pitch deck. Lots of people do it for free and there are online, um, yeah, there are online services like pitch.space that allow you to um, build a, a very good pitch deck for a hundred pounds. You know, it's fixed fee. You get a downloadable PowerPoint. So you can, uh, you can do that for a hundred pounds. You can do advance assurance yourself. It's not impossible. I speak, speak to lots of founders that do that um, for free. It's not without risk. And there is a 20% failure of you, uh, your failure rate according to HMRC, but it's possible. You can get a term sheet for absolutely free from our website without paying a penny. Um, and we offer a minimum viable forecast model as well, which, um, which you can download. So right there, you've got four things, you know, you've got the four basics that you need in place to speak to investors. And it's, you know, you can probably do that for a couple of hundred pounds. Interesting. Um, how are you finding the ecosystem right now? Do you think it's hard for people to? Let me rephrase that. Not that it's hard for people to raise money, but do you think it's people are not investing as much as they would a couple of years ago, or you know, money still flowing and you know, deals are still happening? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing like it was in 2021. That's for sure. I think yeah, there there has been a dramatic change in the landscape, um, which has a few implications. So. Um, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, this one, but, but actually the early stage, so the SEIS and early stage EIS funding rounds that I've spoken about early have weathered the storm relatively well. And they've done that because if you look at the, um, there's a company called Bohurst that you're probably familiar with, Ricardo, but if, if anybody listens to this isn't familiar with it, they should get to bohurst.com. That is for absolute certain. Um, now Bohurst track every funding round in the UK. They look at every funding round and they have some amazing statistics. So, it is because of Bohurst, I can tell you that, you know, the average funding round pre-seed, pre-revenue. So first funding round is one and a half million valuation and a 250K raise. And I know that because Bohurst published the figures, which is amazing. They produce some um, quarterly, uh, half year and yearly reports, which show the state of the state of the nation in terms of um, the investment landscape. And they've, they've got some love. They're not lovely, actually. They're dramatic. They've got some great graphs which show... Um, the levels of funding by the maturity of a business, so pre-seed, seed, uh, you know, bridge, series A, series B and onwards. Um, and you can see over the last, you know, before 2021, there are dramatic growths in, you know, series A onwards. So, you you know, the bulk, there's something, there's a, an amazing statistic, like the amount of funding that's gone into the ecosystem has tripled in the last five years. But if you look at where that's deployed, it's, disproportionately um, deployed at the high end. So it's 
massive VCs deploying tens or hundreds of millions of pounds into series B, C and D. Um, the amount of money that's gone into investment at an angel level, it's increased, but nowhere near as dramatically. It hasn't increased anywhere near as much as Series A onwards. And what's interesting is the, the collapse we've seen over the last two years has disproportionately impacted those Series A onwards as well. So if you're a later stage business relying on Series A onwards funding, it's really painful. It's really, really, really horrible out there. And... um for lots of reasons. But yeah, that money has been disproportionately hit. But it will also disproportionately lifted in the first place. Um, whereas if you look at the growth uh, pre-seed level, for example, or a seed level, the growth was less dramatic and therefore the drop-off has also been less dramatic. Um, and the reality, if you're raising under SEIS, there are still lots of people like me who has who have a tax bill to pay and there are, you know, I don't like paying tax, nobody does. So I use SEIS to offset that, and that hasn't changed at all. Do you think there's anything that institutionally can be done to change this landscape? Is there any, like, we talk a lot about the SEIS and the IS scheme, but do you think there's anything else the government can do and just say, look, this this is really going to be a game changer? Like, if you had a magic wand, what would you try and fix? It's a really tough question, I, and, and it's hard to answer because, uh, you know, at a government level, um, SE, like I said, SEIS and EIS are the best schemes in the world, I'm sure, and and they're always they're all, they're already doing a lot. If I had a magic wand, I could change two things. Um, so the first is I would change the high net worth rules back to what they were before, or make it actually even easier for um, you know female investors to to invest uh, and diverse investors because that helps the rest of the female and diverse ecosystem. Um, so I would do that. And there is a weird, really weird argument, which is, um, you know, I can take a hundred grand out of my bank today, go to a casino and spend that hundred grand. And I could do the same tomorrow, the day after. Nobody would stop me from doing that unless I started winning and I think I'd get thrown out the casino. <laughs> There's no chance of that. Um, but, but yeah, there are no rules in place about me doing that as a person. But I'm not allowed to invest, angel invest, even with the amazing tax benefits. It's just a really weird. So yeah, my first wave of the wand would be would be to fix that and secondly uh, i mean one of the frustrations i have in the uk is the the ecosystem is so fragmented so if, uh, you know i've already said that if i were raising i would go to the private equity club and angel networks because it's a time cost trade-off but it is still much much more painful than it needs to be there are a hundred groups in the uk and there is absolutely no joined up nature between those groups so if I want to apply to all 100, guess what I need to do? I need to find them and I'll share the interactive map later. That's just genuinely amazing. Every single one of those has a very different way of applying though. So I have to find the website. I have to answer 100 different questions to every group because they've got different questions in every way. I've got to work out their website. I've got to check I meet their investment criteria. Yeah, it's just it's just really, really painful. And, and what, what's, you know, that's part one of that frustration. The second frustration, so imagine I go to one of the angel groups. I'm raising half a million pounds, for example, sake, and that angel group goes, right, we're going to put £150,000 in. It is in everybody inter everybody's interest, including that angels group, for them to introduce me to other groups and say, you know, we've already we've already committed 150 here. Um, you can make use of our due diligence. Yeah. Uh, we've already kicked the tyres and we love it, so we think you should you know, benefit from the same research and things. And they should be making introductions so that other people, you know, 
to fill that funding round, which is good for them, it's good for their investors, and it's good for the founders. None of that happens. You know, you pitch to a group, they go, we'll put in 150 grand as long as you find the other 350 grand. And then you're back to square one. You're, you're kind of doing the dog and pony show around, show around every group. It is genuinely ridiculous that there is no way of joining up all of those groups. It is, it's just mad. So for everyone listening and searching yeah, there you go. There's a good business idea, right? There, there is ab- absolutely. And yeah, yeah. Do you think, because a lot of people talk about this, but do you think that, for example, when compared with the States, are funding rounds generally a lot smaller in the UK? And if so, why does that happen? Well, um, not really. Yeah, undoubtedly. Un- absolutely undoubtedly. And one of my uh, my heart sings when I speak to a founder in the UK, I go, yeah, I spotted this funding round in America. They've just raised three million on a safe on a... 15 million valuation, I'm going to do, this, do the same here. And you need to sit them down and go, there, there, I love your ideas. It's not happening, by the way. Um, I mentioned the statistics earlier. So, you know, we play in a different market. We've got much smaller investors. We don't have the same VC ecosystem. And one of my, God, if I had a third one, uh, wave of the wand, I would fix this as well, because VCs in the UK claim, oh, great, we're, you know, pre-seed, pre-revenue. And then when you talk to them, they go, well, actually you need, you know, 70k MRR in order in order for us to consider you pre-seed and you're like well, that's not really pre-seed I'll be honest yeah so whereas in America there there are genuinely pre-seed in, uh, VCs that go down so you know they will invest in pre-revenue companies in the UK there are a few exceptions specifically if you're kind of in deep tech or whatever but usually VCs will only come in you know once you've got that very strong traction um yeah, and the reality, you know, and for any founder watching this, the reality is the UK and the US ecosystem are very different. Um, you're going to raise much, much less here at a much lower valuation, and that's just the way the game is played. Would you would you advise anyone to actually go on a flight all the way to California or New York or, or Texas or wherever it might be and say, hey, would you guys like to invest in me? Would you advise anyone to try and do that? Um, there are, uh, no, probably not. Uh, and I know some people have successfully, but no, probably not. So if you're speaking to American investors, they're not going to be able to make use of SEIS, EIS. Um, they love investing in people and they probably want you to live in the same, uh, you know, at least in the same country, if not the same state or town. And yeah, there are lots of reasons why, you know, there are, you know, don't get me wrong. There are American investors that have invested in the UK. But it is very rare. And you're not making use of that those amazing tax breaks. Now, one of my, probably my favorite investment ever is a company called Skin Analytics. Uh, they do melanoma detection using a smartphone and AI. They have, yeah, the founder is just amazing. And they've been on such an amazing journey over the last 10 plus years. Um, the founder actually went to America to, for his Series A. So he found an American investor who's going to put a couple of million in. And as part of that, he had to relocate to America um, in order to be local to the VCs and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the way the, the game's played. So you can do it if you're willing to potentially, you know, lift your family up and move them to America and things like that. But it's those investments are only, only usually happen, are only practical when you're at that later stage. Um, I have a very, very... Uh controversial question okay. uh, which is uh, how to actually do valuation 
because if I Google this now, I'm going to find 10 different answers, <clears throat> all completely different calculations. So how do you actually get started from your experience? What do you think is the best method to actually evaluate your company if you're pre-seed, for example? Yeah, yeah. Probably the most the most common question I get asked these days, actually. And uh, and it's very emotive because founders are like, oh, my company's worth three million pounds. You're like, okay, what's the what is the basis for that? So I will give you a bonkers example, and and if I forget, please remind me. Um, the the reality is when you are you know when you're later stage, when you've got revenue and profit, even better, there are you know very very tried and tested ways of valuing your business. So when I exit my business, you take uh, you know what's your EBIT. You know what that number is. You can argue about add backs and take away and, you know, what the EBIT, what the underlying EBIT is on an adjusted basis. But one way or another, you're going to come to an agreement on that number. And then there's a multiple and, you know, you, BDO have a list of sector based multiples, for example. And you can tell that an IT company typically gets, if they're average, they'll get a 10 times EBIT multiple. So you take one times it by the other. That's how much your business is worth. Give or take, you know, you can negotiate both those numbers, but it's, there or thereabouts. If you're really lucky and you've got a SaaS business or a massively annuity heavy business, you might get revenue times a multiple as well. So you'll get a three times your revenue number. But you know, there's proper science behind that. You can debate both the numbers, but it's just a multiply sign in the middle. When you are earlier stage, but you're making revenue, there are discounted cash flow and VC methods. Those are, and we've got some uh, calculators on our site you can use for free. Um, yeah, you can download those and try them. If you're pre-seed and pre-revenue, though, none of that works. You know, you can't use DCF. You can't reasonably use VC. You certainly can't multiply your EBIT times nothing because, sorry, your EBIT by a multiple because you've got zero times 10 or whatever. Your business is worthless, which is a problem. So there are two methods that are useful, and I'll, I'll combine them into one for ease of conversation. There are two methods that are used at an early stage. One's called scorecard and one's called the Berkus method. Um, and both of these, you know, can be used in pre-seed, pre-revenue. Um, let me explain how I would use those methodologies because it's how I approach every single business that I look at. Um, typically, I'm a pre-revenue investor. Um, so how do you start? Where do you start from? You start from the Bohurst averages. So you say, what is the average? You look at the latest Bohurst figures. What is the average pre-seed, pre-revenue valuation, pre-money valuation? And the answer is now roughly 1.4, 1.5 million. And that is what it is. And then you apply a bunch of, you know, you sanity check that number against how uh, attractive or not the business is by a number of metrics. Um, and this is where it becomes very personal to the investor because actually what I think is important in a business is probably not the same as the next investment. There are different kind of ratings and criteria and weightings and things. Um, for example, I think by far the most important thing in a business for an early stage is team. So I will look at the team first and, you know, so I've got my basic of 1.5 million here. If the team has multiple exited founders, somebody with a PhD, you know, it's got a well-rounded team of three where they've got somebody who's the techie, somebody who's the business brains and, you know, somebody who's going to slob on the phones and, and sell things. Well, great. You've got three people. You've got a perfect team you probably add half a million to the valuation at that point, all things being equal. If you've got a sole founder, never built a business before, blah, 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 you may take a hundred or 200,000 off of the 1.5 million. Mm. You then look at, uh, I don't know, the defensibility, for example, is the next thing. Um, you say, right, is there, have they got patents in their idea? Is there some secret source or know-how? 
Or is it just a me too business? Is it just something that anybody else could copy with no defensibility? If it's got, you know, if it's got uh, somebody's got a PhD in the subject and a patent and, 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 you may add, you know, another couple of hundred thousand pounds. If you're making something that is eminently copyable, you will maybe knock another hundred or couple of hundred. And you do this through all of the key criteria that's important to me as an investor. And ultimately, I'll come up with a number. Um, yeah, and maybe the number will be just over two million quid, or maybe the number will be just under a million pounds. Um, it's very unusual. Yeah, it would be very unusual for me to consider investing something pre-seed, pre-revenue, if it goes much above two million. And... The, the maths don't really work out that well if it goes, you know, below 800,000 or whatever. So let me give you a bonkers example of how that sh- how this game shouldn't be played. Um, so uh, there was a founder who uh, used an accountant to come up with a valuation. The accountant uh, should be struck off probably, but they did they did three different valuation methods. They did, a uh, even though the company was pre-seed, pre-revenue, and two of these valuations don't make any sense, they did a scorecard method, which came up with a valuation of about 1.4 million, which is probably where the business should have been. It wasn't, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have invested in it anyway, but that's probably okay. The other method was DCF, and that came up with a valuation of about 350 million. Now, do you see the difference between 1.5 and 350 million? It's a big difference, yeah. Yeah. They then did a VC method, which I think was even more bonkers. It was, you know, 400 million or something like that. Um, so, 1.5, million, 400 million. Um, now, it, anybody with any common sense would look at that and say, actually, there's something dramatically wrong here because there's such a big difference between the three numbers. Anyway, the, the accountant didn't do that. He did a weighted average between the three numbers. Um, he did a 20-40-40 split, actually, which doesn't make it any better. And the valuation came out, uh, came out at about 200 million. Now, yeah, needless to say, he didn't get funded. And the reality is, you know, a, a good sanity check would have been, you know, what does normal look like according to Bowhurst? Even with a little, you know, even if he thought his business was better than that, you know, he shouldn't have gone much more above two million. Um, and one of the one of the things we do in Founder Catalyst, I, you know, every time we speak to customers, we say, "What are you raising? What's your valuation?" And we sanity check that. And it's actually quite difficult because you know the conversation you have is telling people why they're not going to raise what they want at the valuation they want and and just bring people back to what, what market standard looks like. Do you think it's a good indicator for an investor to look at a founder and if they come up with a crazy valuation like you just mentioned, sorry, um, and just say, you know what, you're you're so out of touch with reality and the, the facts and figures we looked at that I'm not even going to spend my time looking at it because it just doesn't make any sense. Do you think that's... Yeah, I mean, you know, you're... What you want, to, when you're speaking to a founder, you are checking that they are, you know, sensible, bright. They're going to do the right thing whilst building the business while nobody's looking. If you've got somebody who genuinely thinks their business worth 200 million quid when the average is 1.5, yeah, it's not a great look. And I would, I would just walk away in, yeah, in that example, you would just run for the hills. Now, there is a slight nuance to this as well, where even if you're not quite as ridiculous as 1.5 to 200 million, that is, that is mad. Um, but, but even if you are, um, and I see lots of founders falling for this one. Imagine, you know, your valuation should be about one and a half million. But you, you kind of like, well, I'm going to make it four million and see what happens. There's a really good analogy I use with, you know, with when I'm going to buy a car. So if I want to spend, <clears throat> excuse me, 50,000 pounds on a car, 
I'll walk into the uh, walk into the garage. If there's a car for sixty thousand pounds, I might try and negotiate and beat them up, and you know maybe I'll get to fifty three and everybody's happy or whatever. If there's a car for two hundred k sat on the lot, I'm just not going to look at it. I'm not going to test drive it. I'm just going to completely, you know, I'm going to walk away from that immediately. And the same analogy kind of works for startups. If I see somebody who I think should be valued at one point five with a four million valuation, you know, I'm just going to go. Well, there's no point having the conversation because. Yeah, there's just such a big gap to breach. Now, actually, the founder will probably, unfortunately for them, find out that their valuation should be about one and a half million. But by that point, you know, there hundreds of investors have walked away because it's it's just so out of kilter. It's funny you use the car analogy because it's the same thing. Whenever you have uh, someone selling their car, they always assume they're selling, you know, the top pens Ferrari. Yeah. In reality, they're probably selling, you know, a Vauxhall or something like that, a Vauxhall Corsa. It doesn't look like a Ferrari. This is, it's not a Ferrari. Uh, but yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, Sam, as we're closing, and I think we can actually talk for days about all, all these things, but as we're closing the end of this episode, uh, if people want to reach out to you and find you, uh, where can they do so? So, uh, yeah, foundercatalyst.com is, is our website. I'm on LinkedIn. I love, you know, love connecting, love talking about all things uh all things startup so yeah uh connect with me on uh on linkedin you'll find there's a calendly link there so if you want to book a meeting and discuss your 200 million pound valuation as a founder then then uh yeah do that as well um it's worth mentioning so something i'm really really proud of probably you know and sometimes you you start something that you think is going to fizzle and not work out it actually works much better than you think but within the founder catalyst um family we've got a, com- a whatsapp community which sounds daft actually but it's got well over 200 founders on it now um and it's just such a lovely community where everybody there can ask questions on you know if it's fundraising then great we'll you know p- provide support and guidance but you know they're asking each other of has anybody heard of this investor or does anybody know a an accountant that specializes in r&d tax credits or does anybody know a developer in Lithuania or whatever it is, you can ask any question because there's so many people on the group and everybody kind of rolls their sleeves up and helps each other. You'll get sensible answers. So um, yeah, we'd love, love people to come and join that as well as founders. How, how can people join that community? Uh, become a customer. So sign up to founder catalyst, you know, create an account as you onboard for an account. There's a, you know, you enter your mobile number and indicate you want to sign up to that community. Thank you, Sam. That's been absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to seeing you because we're actually going to run a course together on how to build your business in, in six weeks. So if anyone listening wants to listen to Sam and, and get his advice and expertise, to make sure to sign up for that. And uh, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for calling.